on today's show. When there's an extraordinary outpouring of emotion, that might indicate revival, that might not indicate revival. It is not the root. That's not what we use to determine. What we use to determine is are those fundamental baseline graces being poured out of repentance, of the gospel being preached, of deeper holiness, deeper sincerity of wanting to obey the Lord, deeper honor and reverence for the Lord, for scripture as sufficient, as authoritative. Those things are the actual measure of revival. Stay tuned. This episode of the Missions Podcast is sponsored by Radius International. Radius International is a nine-month training program that immerses students in missions and prepares them for culture and language acquisition, evangelism, and church planting among unreached language groups. Their gap year program is available for 18 through 25-year-olds seeking to participate in the Great Commission with an impact on unreached people groups. Gap year interns focus on three things, learning, serving, and growing. They serve in different aspects of the Radius training program and learn through times in class and one-on-one time with staff mentors. And they have opportunities to grow in their walk with the Lord. For more information, go to RadiusInternational.org. And while you're there, thank them for sponsoring the Missions Podcast. And welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media for ABWE, joined by Scott Dunford, Pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. Now, Scott, at the time of this recording, we've got a big question about theology, missions, and practice on the table. Mm, So I don't know how quickly the news cycle is going to move off of some of the discussions that are being had about revival. Yeah. But it's important for us to slow down and discuss those things, too. And frankly, whether it's still in the news cycle or not, what's happening in Asbury, it's always relevant. What's happening in our churches, in the life of our congregations, and this idea of is revival biblical? So that's what we want to dive into today. Scott, I'll let you set that up a little bit more. But before we do so, if this podcast is a blessing to you, if it has been a blessing to you, Go ahead and share it. Give it a five-star review. Give it a positive rating in your podcast platform of church, excuse me, of choice. Great. Can't talk today. Or of church. Of church is fine too. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, easy for me to say. But go ahead and do that. Listen, we know that we say that all the time, but that does help other people discover the content and be edified and equipped and mobilized and sent out. With that out of the way, we'll give some other ways that you can show the show some love at the end of the program. Scott, talk to me about your feelings on revival. Why are we addressing this today? This is a show about missions. It's not a show about U.S. theological controversies. Well, and it's, it's interesting. I'm looking right now at an article on my computer screen in front of me from, from today, February. I think today is February 23rd, uh, 6 a.m. In, of all places, the Atlantic Monthly, where you would not expect right, to see that, an article That great about, bastion of biblical Christianity. Right. Talking about, you know, this event that began on February 8th uh, at Asbury Seminary and, and University in Wilmore, Kentucky, where, you know, the article talks about 20 students lingering and began to pray for one another after a chapel service and how it is spilled over into now a couple weeks of prayer and worship. And, and we're hearing things happening in other universities. Even my my boys, they go to a Christian university here on the West Coast. And, you know, we're going to do an all-night prayer meeting and student-led and and, you know, trying to jumpstart this. And, and and I don't know about you, but I grew up in this, uh, what we would call revivalism, where we would 
constantly be praying for a revival. Um, it was a definitely something that was on our w- weekly prayer list. We'd have often times of extended prayer asking for revival. And we'd even have something where we would have revival meetings. I don't know if you that went to a church that had revival meetings, but it was scheduled. Almost every summer, we would have an evangelist come in and uh, he would preach a series of, of meetings. Usually they were about a week long that were focused on repentance of sin issues and uh, obviously, you know, there was at least one night where heavy emphasis was put on evangelism, which we were encouraged to go out and get our friends uh, to come out and hear the gospel on that particular night. And usually it was a pretty hellfire and brimstone type of like, don't burn in hell because it's going to be horrible kind of a, a sermon. Right. And that's what I grew up with. And uh, same thing with camps, going to Christian camps and had that kind of same experience. And so the idea of revival and wanting revival and wanting this intense spiritual renewal that would spill out, not just in our own circle, we'd say like draw a circle around you. That's where it needs to begin. But that would, would spill out into, you know, our nation and our city, our, you know, our churches was something really long for. And I think there's some historical roots to that as well. that go back, you know, even as late as pre uh Revolutionary War, uh, colonial America, and into England with the Methodist revivals. Um, I'll give you a chance to break in here. Otherwise, I can just keep rambling yeah. about that. No, no. It, it's well, and you're referring to the, the first Great Awakening, otherwise known as the Great Awakening. I would say that the second Great Awakening wasn't. We could uh, talk about that more, but I don't want to get too far off course. My upbringing was a little different. Uh, on the one hand, we weren't having tent revivals. We weren't using that term a lot explicitly, but it was deeper in our DNA. I grew up in the Calvary Chapel movement, the church movement <laughs> yeah. that began with Chuck Smith seeing the genuine revival. Have you seen the breakout? Yeah, movie? the Jesus Revelation movie yeah. is uh, Revolution movie is out right now. So you, you've got Lonnie Frisbee and Chuck Smith baptizing hippies in the ocean. And I know people, uh, people that are near and dear to our family who were directly discipled as a result of those ministries that were happening in the Jesus movement that started in the 70s. And so we can even look back in our own family history and the history of families that have touched ours and see Mm -hmm. there is such a thing as a, a biblical outpouring of new life, of new energy, of new presence of the Holy Spirit among his people. But there's so many different directions that we could go with this conversation. Scott, one observation that I want to make early on, because I think it's been one of the most helpful pieces of analysis that I've heard as I've researched this. I haven't dived deeply into what's happening at Asbury. I've heard a couple of accounts. I don't want to talk so much about just that, because I think what's more relevant is for the missionaries on the field that are listening, the local church pastors that are listening to this show, which those are our two biggest groups in our audience uh, and obviously involves lay persons, seminary students. Everyone listening is going to be engaged in some kind of local ministry in their mm-hmm. context. The question is, is this something that we should pursue? Is this something that we should expect? And one of the best observations and pieces of analysis that I've heard from Ian Murray, who's written at length on this topic in books like Pentecost Today, which treats the biblical foundations of an understanding mm-hmm. of revival. And he has some other works along those lines as well. Did he write Revival and Revivalism? I revival and Revivalism as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And one of the critical claims that he makes that others have made in a similar vein, coming from a historically Protestant reform standpoint, is that true revival, and we can talk about what characterizes true revival, but it's not qualitatively different from the ordinary grace that comes 
when people are saved, when the church gathers on a regular basis to renew its relationship with the Lord, to fellowship with one another, to honor the Lord's day. It's not a different type of thing. It's a difference of quantity, not of quality. And I appreciate hearing that because when we pray for revival, aren't we praying for more salvation? Aren't yeah. we praying for more repentance? Well, that's that's the ordinary grace that we want all the time. It's a difference, if anything, of amount, not of kind, of quality, uh, not of quantity, not of quality, but of quantity. Easy for me to say. You, so, you, you know what I'm getting at. By the way, yeah. to everyone, I need to apologize. I've I've been sick. So this is all brain fog. Uh, so just ignore everything that I just said. Scott, take over. So let's let's start with a not necessarily an easy question, but an, a very important foundational question is, is the idea of revival, revivalism, revivals, evangelists, is this a biblical idea? Uh, where does this come from scripturally? Or is this just something that is a modern phenomenon that just comes along with, with you know, I mean, especially as we see yeah. historically a, an emphasis really on Enlightenment era America revolutionary fervor America and England. So let me ask you that question. We'll start. We can kind of dive into that. Like, do you see revival as something that w- that the Bible even tells us to want and look for? Yeah, I, I don't know how you would approach the question, but from a certain standpoint, none of our English words are directly biblical concepts, right? The, the English sure. word Trinity yeah. is not in the Bible, but the question it's is, part does of the Bible theology, teach? Right? Exactly. That, yeah. And that's why we do this show is sometimes uh, as, as missions practitioners in particular, we come to the text of scripture expecting us to not have to do any systematizing to get out of theology and then apply that. We tend to be more biblicists in the missiological world. But in reality, we do have to look at what is the overall teaching of Scripture and how can we package that and put terms and definitions with that so that we can understand that, so that we can take that mm-hmm. to the bank. And mm-hmm. I think revival is something that's taught in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was looking earlier today at Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is something as a genuine longing for, mm-hmm. for someone who is in right standing with God, has relationship with God, is, is among God's covenant people, his children, to still say, Lord, remember what you did in those times of old. Where are yeah. you now? Won't you do that again? And I think if we're honest, if we're looking out across the landscape of our culture in the West now, of course we want to see a renewed giving of life from God to his people that is going to spill out of our individual lives, families, churches, homes into the broader society. I think that desire, that impulse is good. I think you see it when the Jews come back from Mm -hmm. exile, when you Mm -hmm. read in Nehemiah eight and nine and the law is wet red and there's, there's weeping, there's repentance, there's a recommitting and a covenanting together. We will follow the Lord. And then certainly in the new covenant age, first of all, the whole new covenant and what Christ does is treated as a revival by the Old Testament prophets. Yeah. Look at Ezekiel 36. Look at the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's something was dead. The people right. of God were dead. They were under judgment. They, they weren't doing well. They couldn't keep the law of Moses. And yet new life was going to come. And the spirit was going to be poured out. And we see that in Acts 2. Yeah. And you see, um, you know, before, before we move on to the New Testament, we, you know, just even seeing like what you described there in Exodus or er, er, in Ezekiel kind of being shown in small ways, you know, even toward the end of the Davidic dynasty in the Old Testament, where, you know, you have these glimpses of Joash or Josiah finding the word of God. And then mm-hmm. there's like a, a reading of it and a turning to God. You, of course, you mentioned already in the post-exilic uh, times, 
um, this response so that even though that word and the, the idea of like meetings, so to speak, but it was a response of when, when people started turning to the Lord, especially leaders started turning to the Lord, the word of God was read and people were repenting. There seemed to be a, a special time of, of spirit and blessing. So then we're talking about Acts 2. So what do you make of Acts 2? I, we, you and I talked a little bit off camera about this. It seems to me that Acts 2, uh, especially what's, what's happening there in that church, I'm trying to remember right now the reference off the top of my head, you know, where, where they're, they're meeting together every day, they're breaking bread together, they're, they're just enjoying right. a sweet time. And in, in some ways that's being used, you know, we use that as like, this is the ideal of what the church should be, and all churches should be doing this. But I also wonder, you know, if this is something that was just a special gift of the Holy Spirit to the church to prepare them for things to come. Um, but it would seem to me that that is a kind of an example of what we would look at, look for, and what happens when revival is taking place among God's people. What do you think? Well, and I think uh, just as an individual goes through different stages of their physical development, just as an individual goes through different stages of their spiritual development as well, there's, there's valleys and there's peaks, there's infancy, there's childhood, there's adolescence, there's maturity. I think the same applies to the corporate church, the global church, but also individual church mm. congregations where the church is brand new. It's just been birthed on the day of Pentecost. Yes, the covenant people of God existed, but the New Testament church is inaugurated that day of Pentecost. The spirit is poured out and there's a sweetness. There's an intimacy there. It, it, you, you think of a newborn with the mother, right? There, there is mm-hmm. a there is a, a connection there that's happening mm-hmm. that's sweet, that's not necessarily repeatable. And yet any healthy organism is going to need times of connection again throughout its development and throughout its life. You even look at the church throughout the book of Acts. There are other times when there's a unique imbuement of God's activity. And again, it's not always just the special activity of signs and wonders that you would point to in Acts. It's the regular, ordinary grace. It's supernatural. It's not ordinary in the stance that it's natural. But it is ordinary in the sense that it's the saving grace that God is always giving in his new covenant plan of redemption, that grace of, of more people turning to the Lord, people being emboldened for witness, people enduring suffering joyfully, and of course, repentance, a spirit of repentance being poured out on his people. And there's valleys and there's peaks. There's times where we experience that more. There's times where we experience that less. So I'm highly sympathetic to there's really two ditches that we can fall into here. Right. The one ditch is that we would be incredulous that we or that we excuse me, that we would be credulous and that we would believe every single account of Holy Spirit supernatural activity that's reported to us and not ask any questions. Mm. That's one extreme. We're told to test the spirits. Mm -hmm. We should exercise discernment. It's not unloving to exercise discernment. At the same time, we can be so skeptical that we slip into full-blown cynicism and we can quench the spirit. We can be suspicious of anything. So on this side, I'm highly sympathetic to the critique that would say, if you want revival, go to the Lord's meeting place on the Lord's day, meet with his people, confess sin, hear the gospel preached, enjoy the ordinary means of grace, come to the table. I completely agree with that in principle. I also want to add to that, though, if we really are laboring on to know Christ and make him known to the nations, there are times where we frankly look at business as usual 
and we say we need more. We need an additional outpouring of the same ordinary grace outside of the confines of our regular programming, of our regularly scheduled yeah. programming, because we need it. And we know that nothing of significance is going to happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to make a comment about that, but then also, you know, go to another place there. Um, you know, we're talking about this. I think what was happening in Acts 2 is also preparing them for what's going to happen in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 11, and Acts right. chapter 13 and following, where you have this great, sweet outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a really special way, and that people are really tangibly feeling this connection not only with God, but with God's people. Because what's coming in, in chapter 7 is Stephen's being killed, the church being scattered, uh, the church being spread even further in Acts chapter 11 because of the persecutions that Saul, uh, ironically, in God's providence, right. uh, was, was, was enacting. And so, you know, like you were just describing, I think, that sometimes God's doing things in a unique and special way to prepare us for what's coming later and uh, preparing us to go deeper and to be able to endure the trials that that we might face. Switching gears on that a little bit, though, and, and I'm going to pitch you another question here in a second. But I was talking to one of my to one of my sons, Augie, and just describing, you know, worship music in general and the way that it seems sometimes that especially among the youth Christian youth culture, um, music is used in a way to try to, you know, just feel this, just come down to the front and bow down. And in some right. ways I was used to that, not not in that way, but in different ways, you know, the altar calls, 30 minutes of altar call yeah. from the evangelist back in the day. And they do it differently now. But, you know, he was describing that, that, that feeling of like, sometimes you go to camp and you have this really emotional, spiritual high. And then, and you make these big decisions for the Lord and these, this hyper-focused, intense environment. Then you come back and you just go back to your normal life. And you feel like maybe God isn't real because I, what did I experience there? And why are not I experiencing it here? And, and um, I've, I've talked to a lot of young people, um, you know, millennials and zenials who've expressed that same thing. Like, and then what ends up happening, and sometimes this plays into the mission trip culture, right? Where they're constantly chasing that high of that one time that I felt God in a very tangible, ex- exceptional way. And it was because I was doing this, this, and this and on the mission field. I was on a mission trip or I was at a camp. And so you end up just pursuing that constantly. So let's, let's talk just for a little bit about the normal means of grace and how we go about living a normal Christian life. And then I think it would be good for yeah. us to talk a little bit about how historically have guys like Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a lot about revival uh, in the Great Awakening, you know, how can we test and look at, at, at these things? And are there some criteria that we can use even in our own life, not even trying to do any kind of analysis of what's happening someplace far away from us. But uh, so let's go back to that question. Are you concerned about that? Uh, the idea of like young people just chasing these ideas, these, these, these Christian highs and how do we go about just having a normal Christian walk with God? I remember when I was in college at a Christian university, me and several others that I was close to, we would attend our weekly convocations. And there was always a group of maybe half a dozen students, mm. no matter what day of the week it was, no matter what the atmosphere on campus was, they were trying to whip something up spiritually. Mm. Every single time that the university met for chapel during worship, they would be in the front row. They would be dancing extravagantly. They would be 
disorderly, you could say. You could say it was out of genuine affection for Christ. We would call them all the revivalists. We meant that sarcastically, whether or not that was wise or even accurate of us to call them that. That was just how we characterized that. We had no other word to attach to that. But it goes back at this idea that we do tend to, because we are expressive individualists in our culture today, we approach these these spiritual emotional highs as things that if there's an emotional rise that I get out of the music, if it crescendos at the right point, uh, if it if it coincides with my my heartbeat is rising, you know that that somehow constitutes the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards, one of the things that he discusses at length is there's several factors that may or may not indicate genuine biblical revival. So the extraordinary outpouring of emotions in works like his Religious Affections, which we would highly recommend reading, Jonathan Edwards' The Religious Affections. When there's an extraordinary outpouring of emotion, that might indicate revival, that might not indicate revival. It is not the root. That's not what we use to determine. What we use to determine is are those fundamental baseline graces being poured out of repentance, of the gospel being preached, of deeper holiness, deeper sincerity of wanting to obey the Lord, deeper honor and reverence for the Lord, for scripture as sufficient, as authoritative. Those things are the actual measure of revival. Those things may or may not bring with them certain emotional, ecstatic uh, experiences. It may not bring those things at all. But yeah. that's not where we make that value judgment. Yeah. I mean, we've probably all had those moments where we read something in scripture and tears come to our eyes. Then we read there's times you read the scriptures and tears don't come to your eyes. That doesn't change the scripture or the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Scott, you know, a, a question for you. So your church and you've you've pastored, you've been a missionary, you've served in spiritual forms of leadership in multiple ministries, multiple settings. Would you say that in our tribe and in our culture, in conservative, baptistic, reformed or reformed leaning circles, would you say that that one, there's a sufficient understanding of what a biblical revival might actually be? And two, are we actually looking for it? Do we pray for it? Or is that something that you see in your upbringing in sort of the the fundamentalist revivalisms that happened in certain camps and in certain tribes? Do we seek those things today? Because I was having a conversation with an ABWE leader a few weeks ago, and we were talking to each other about the need to simply have that heart of sincerity. I think sincerity is a great keyword to use here. Again, as far as judging, are these things true or not? The conversation we were having with each other was we ought not to, within ABWE specifically, this applies to any other church, any parachurch organization. We cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot program. We cannot engineer success apart from the Holy Spirit. And what reliance on the Holy Spirit is going to look like is a deep, abiding heart for the lost, a love for God, a childlike delight in the things of God, a burden for the unreached, for those who are without Christ, that will drive and compel someone. But the second that we start to rest on our laurels and we're using canned talks and we're repeating the same talking points everywhere and we've systematized everything is the point at which oftentimes we're operating in the flesh and not in the spirit. So would you say that in the circles where you've been a part of that we really desire this the way that we ought to? Hmm. That's good. Uh, that's a good question. I, I think um, if I'm being honest about my own feelings and where I've been recently is more of like 
because of, I think, some of the abuses of that. I don't mean abuses like people were intentionally trying to be abusive, but that it was it felt manipulative. And we I, I can point to many examples of how, how many times did I get saved, quote unquote, growing up because I felt because of the methods that were being used were so manipulative to a young person that I felt like you really have no choice but either to to get but to get saved all the time, you know, um, yeah. And that, so you try to avoid that, right? By not being as emotional, by not doing that. That's a tough, that's a tough uh, thing. But I, I think was, I'm so yeah, I would say probably right now I'm not in circles that emphasize revival or really even pray and look for it. But I do think maybe that's a mis- that's probably an overreaction. I think historically even um, you can make, you can say what you want about Lent, but Lent started yesterday for those who, pra- who practice that. But like the point of that, at least at one point, was that a time of of fasting and identifying with Christ and thinking about his sufferings and a hope that our sins would be clear to us and we could repent of those sins. Like that's a that's an ancient and and good desire, you know, that we would um it can be bad if you're saying, Hey, we need to, you know, we're gonna sin like crazy on fat Tuesday and then we're gonna get serious about God and then yeah. we're gonna move on to it after Easter. You know, right. like that's that's obviously a a negative consequence of it that also happens in these things as well. So yeah, I think a good reminder to say it's important for the church to be repentant and to humble ourselves before the Lord and to seek God's moving, you know, not just in the wicked world out there, but within our own hearts and within our own churches that we would want to see people become more, more sensitive to, to the Holy spirit and to the word of God being preached and, more obedient to his word and more loving of each other. Um, those are all things that I think we ought to be praying for and asking for it to be done in a way that would be seen by the world and spill out of our small little groups. And in case we haven't used the word repentance enough, C.S. Lewis has this great piece on the nature of repentance. He basically says, if what you're repenting of corporately, publicly, is the thing that everyone in the secular world in the public eye also sees as bad, mm-hmm. then chances are you're doing the easy thing and not confessing the real sin underneath the surface. You know, we we live on the on the one hand in a completely immoral society. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you see all sorts of reactions against certain things that we perceive to be absolute evil be, because right. we've we've blown everything sort of out of proportion. We don't have a sense of the objective biblical standards of, of God's holiness and of right and wrong and of good and evil and sin. And so mistreating the environment or systemic racism, certain things get brought up as sort of the sin du jour. But when the Holy Spirit pours out genuine repentance, it's also going to mean confessing sin that's that you're not going to get applauded for confessing, that there's no social benefit to confessing. Think of in the book of Acts when Uh, You could say from a certain standpoint that revival comes into the Ephesian church and you can trace the history of that. There's there's a few disciples that only knew the baptism of John. Again, this is happening in that overlap between the old and new covenant periods. And so we don't want to say this is normative for today necessarily, but there's some disciples who only knew the baptism of John. They weren't baptized in the triune name. And so they're baptized in the name of Jesus. They receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the seven sons of Sceva who are sent packing by this demon that overpowers them in a failed exorcism attempt. And because of that, though, because people are seeing the power of God and realizing that the name of Jesus is attached to it, 
people confess their magic practices in Ephesus, a city where magic was popular, where it was widespread. It was, that was where the temple of Artemis, yeah. the temple of Diana was. Uh, it was a huge hotspot of occult activity. They divulge their magic practices. They burn the books in public for us as well. Whatever the, the cultural sins are, the things that are acceptable, the things that are popular in our own in our own circles, if we're not throwing those things on the pyre in our churches, literally or metaphorically, if not, if we're not willing to give yeah. up our love of human approval or our love of being yeah. approved by the culture around us or of being mm-hmm. accepting, if we're not willing to give up those things, even even our, our sexual licentiousness, if it's pornography, if it's LGBTQ, all of it, if we're not willing to put that on the altar and repent of those things, as well as our own pride and hypocrisy and the things that have characterized the sins that we confess for eons, things that aren't quite as new uh, in, the, in terms of the culture wars. Those are the things that mark biblical repentance as well. And, mm-hmm. and Jonathan Edwards has a couple of things. Let me share these real yeah, quick and then that. get your thoughts on those. Mm-hmm. So, and, and credit to others who have pulled this list together. But in Edwards' writings, he pulls out five key traits of true revival. The first is, is Christ preached? So it's not enough that we would repent if the gospel's not being proclaimed. It has to be about Christ. And the Holy Spirit's role is to point others to Christ. He's the most self-effacing member of the Trinity, some people would say, in that he's always pointing to Christ. So is Christ being explicitly Mm. preached, exalted, honored? Second, is there a renouncing of sin? Is there repentance that goes to what we said a moment ago? Third, is the scripture treasured? Is God's word written, inscripturated, inspired, being treated as sufficient. Now, that's not to say you might have some people saying, you know, I had this dream, I had this experience, I had this vision, and those sorts of things. You could debate, is there validity to those things? Is there not validity to those things? But is Scripture being lifted up as preeminent over all of those and as the sole and infallible rule of faith and practice? Fourth, is the truth being made preeminent? So is it encouraging greater levels of transparency, truth, commitment to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And five, is it resulting in a deeper love for God and a Mm. deeper love for neighbor? Those are the standards that we have to judge by. Not by what vision did I see for my life and my ministry or for my field team. Not by did I speak in a foreign language. Wherever you fall on the theological spectrum, and, and if you listen to the show, you know where Scott and I come from as Reformed Baptists. But those are the things, again, it's the ordinary graces just in a greater measure. It's ideally what we should be seeing every Sunday in our gatherings. And and that will look different if you're ministering in Scandinavia, if you're ministering in Wisconsin, um, and if you're ministering in Brazil. But you repeat yourself. Right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, Yeah, true. Good point. Uh, Although we have a lot of Germans in Wisconsin, too. So it's not just Scandinavians. You got to get, you know, you got to get clear. But they all have last names like Kochman. So uh, (laughs) uh, but understanding that the cultural expression of those things is is different than the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it's going to look different. You know, I mean. Um, and we should expect it to look a little bit, look a little bit different based on cultures, but those things that you just pointed out, I think that's a great list of things we're looking for. Is there true repentance? Is there a growing love? Is there emphasis of Jesus Christ? And so as we do our ministries and go forward, um, those are the things I think we should be praying for and looking for, whether we call that revival or whether we call that just sanctification, or we call that the growth of the church. There's a lot of things yeah. we could call that, but that, that is, I think, what, something we're all supposed to be striving to be more like Jesus. I think something else that needs to be said too, so often we discuss revival 
based on the literal meaning of the word, it's new life from the dead. Mm -hmm. And so often that's applied in the context of existing churches, existing ministries that are lifeless and cold being brought to a greater sensitivity to the Mm -hmm. things of God. And that's Mm -hmm. an important application of this concept. But what we can't leave out for those that are listening that are in pioneering missions contexts where there's nothing dead because it was never alive in the first place, where me and my family or our teammates are the only Christians that we know. What is revival here? There's 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 nothing to revive. It's it's just bringing it to life for the first time. And we don't want to leave those individuals out of the conversation. What I would say in those contexts is we still can't lose the significance of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit yeah. works through his word, works through the gospel being proclaimed. And John, John three, right? You, you don't see the wind blowing, but you do see its effects. But nothing of meaning happens for the kingdom apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. even in those hard places, we can begin to rest on our own laurels, to buy our own press, to believe that we're the anointed person that God is going to use to change this context. We've got our plan together. We've got our team together. And we've got to simply confess to the Lord that, yes, he uses ordinary things like gospel proclamation, like calling people to repent and to believe. Yeah. But if the spirit isn't at work in that, no one's eyes will be opened. No one's hearts will be changed. Yeah. And the church itself, even if it's within a few families, within a team, that church won't have any life either apart from the spirit. And I think, you know, adding to that, both historically and I think also biblically, revival often is what preceded these great missions endeavors, you know, out of the great, great awakening, you see, you know, new mission work to, to the, the Native American peoples, you know, you saw out of the, the later revivals, you know, we've, we've talked, we, we can talk about, you know, some of this, the student yeah. volunteer movement. Revival and reformations happening um, hand in hand, revival yeah, and reformation. Right. It's a two pronged thing. And even in Acts, you know, like the renewal of God's people and the empowerment of God's people and the sanctification of God's people didn't just result in better Sunday school classes. It resulted in yeah. people going to the ends of the ends of the earth. And so where we want to see revival happening, we need to pray that God revives our hearts and makes us yielded to him and gives us uh, confidence in him. And I, I think of brothers and sisters that I know who have gone through incredible suffering. And um, there's one believer here that I know that you know, in his home country, a very persecuted place, you know, was stabbed, beaten, his wife was kidnapped and sold off to someone else, you know, and, and, and those things proceeded, I think God giving him real grace to be able to, to experience God, know God better for the ministry that was ahead. And, and so, you know, I think we, we, we see that God prepares us and, and gives us these, these moments of really going deeper into, into, you know, into the word and into our own sin life and repenting of those things to prepare us for what he's got for us next. Scott, that's a good point of application winding down is that if we're asking the Lord to do something out of the ordinary and pouring out these graces, it might mean that he's requiring something out of the ordinary Mm. for us. Yeah. And so easy. It's so, so easy for us to content ourselves with business as usual. Uh, But to whom much is given, much is required. And the reason perhaps we're not calling on the Lord for revival as much as we should be, as much as when you're reading the news, we should be calling out for revival in our nation here, certainly in the U.S. and throughout the West. Uh, But wherever you are and wherever you're listening from and ministering to, maybe the reason we're not really calling out for revival is one, maybe we wouldn't recognize it and receive it if the Lord were to grant it. Maybe we'd be too skeptical. 
and I don't want to exclude that possibility, but number two, maybe we're so locked into our ordinary way of doing things that we wouldn't be in a position to receive it from that standpoint. We're already doing so much in the flesh and not recognizing our total dependence on the Spirit, who again uses the ordinary things, he uses the means of grace. But it's his power at work and not ours, and we've got to maintain that perspective. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Good word. Well, we want to know what you think. We appreciate your perspectives. We've got people from a number of different denominational backgrounds yeah. as well as places of the world that are listening to this. So we would love to, in fact, write to us. Uh, maybe we'll read your uh, email, your letter uh, on the air that would uh, be edifying to others. So if there's something that you want to share to hop in on this conversation, email Scott at missionspodcast.com or Alex at missionspodcast.com. Again, we would love to hear from you. This show has been a blessing. Just a reminder from the beginning of the show, do all of those fun podcast things to help push us up in the rankings so that more people can hear it and be blessed and mobilized by the content. If you believe in the mission of the show, which is to bridge these worlds of missiology and theology and to put boot leather on our doctrine, then go ahead and join us as a partner and as a supporter with the show missionspodcast.com slash support. Again, that's missionspodcast.com slash support is the way to show your support for the show and enable us to do more things for the kingdom through this ministry. This ministry is the ministry of ABWE International. To learn more about ABWE, go to abwe.org. To get more of this show, go to missionspodcast.com. Until next week, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening and go pray for revival. <laughs>